Welcome to the Don't Die podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu. They're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment, the right program for you, and stop dying. Stop dying, Mike. Most of those people would stop dying. Well, it's just getting ridiculous. Junkies. You know, I had I have epiphanies when I'm in the shower, and I realize we're both musician songwriters and we have a podcast and we never talk about music that much and we don't do things mm. about music we don't play music we and play a little music no you play the we same rec- old song from all right i'm gonna put over on, and over I'm a, on this podcast just to dispute you i'm gonna i'm gonna put that truth that we did well, okay and it's gonna go right here bob listen to this folks i'm sick and tired of Just give us some truth now. 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 Just give us some truth now.
There you go. See, we do play music, Bob. That's one song we recorded in the last year. No, we recorded. You want oh, to put another you know, one? Yes, put put in uh, Comfortably Numb. Okay, here goes Comfortably okay, Numb. Okay, here's another song it, that we're, we're going to do a music sort of podcast. Here goes Comfortably Numb, me and Bob.
That is now really that's a good version. So so anyway, so I wanted to talk about music and and how important it is because it, it, I went to this rehab called Northbound in Orange County. It's a couple of friends of mine started it years ago. Now it's a big it's a big airplane hangar building by the Orange County Airport. And I went there just for the music class, right? And the kids get up and sing songs. Rehabs. I know you never been to rehab, Mike. You got sober in AA. I just, it, yeah. <laughs> it's so hard to talk to you about rehab. 12-step. Um. So, 12-step meetings. So, rehab started having music groups in it in the 90s, right? Just to, and, it, and it's a good therapeutic tool. You can write a song about how you're feeling about being sober or bloated. And I guess Demi Lovato wrote this song called I'm Not Sober Anymore a couple months ago. Have you heard this song? No, but it sounds <laughs> <It's> great. so sad. <laughs> I'm not, mommy, I'm not sober anymore. Oh, no. Oh, my God, it's ah. so sad. So, so a friend of mine that was in the instrumental band from Beach Boulevard. What was the band? Uh, Agent Orange. Agent Orange. Yep. Dusty. Rusty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Dusty, I think. Dusty, yeah. Dusty Watson. He runs the music program at this rehab. And he, I saw him at the Warp Tour, and he said, hey, could you come by the music program one day? And I did the other day. Yeah. It was so great. There was, there was hip-hoppers. This one kid nice. did like what's called slur hip-hop, or I forget. I don't know all the slur terms. Slur hip-hop? Yeah, you can't understand what they're saying. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But, I'm but, not sure why, but I really like that. <laughs> it's, I'm not. it's a good version of hip-hop. <laughs> So, so one kid, it was amazing what he did. It was like an original song he wrote. Then this other kid wrote a EDM, like a it's an instrumental dance music track that was good. Then this kid gets up there. I don't know who he is. He's got an acoustic guitar. He plays "Night and Day" by Frank Sinatra. Unfucking believable. Wow. And and oh, so it was great. just so what a and great I, experience. So Nothing here's a thing that I, I I now I might be embarrassing myself right now, and and everybody can laugh at me. That's fine. People have been laughing at me and my stupid shit for forty years. But I went and saw Father John Misty at the Hollywood Bowl. He's my favorite artist. He's the greatest songwriter going. He's amazing. Yeah. Right. If you haven't yeah. heard him, he has three albums, four albums in a row, beginning with I Love You, Honey Bear to the weird one with the Indian Hindu cover, and then this last one that he made called Pure Comedy. It's just a masterpiece of, of just documenting modern times. His name is Father John Misty. So we, it's Chrissy's favorite artist, too. So we went. We were at the Hollywood Bowl. He's got a new album out. I haven't heard it yet. And, and he plays this beautiful song called Don't Die. Oh my! And and you know I don't. We were sitting right in the front, 
And after the song was over, he looked down at me in front of the whole Hollywood Bowl and said, you know what that song's about, don't you? No, and really. And pointed at me. Oh, and so I wonder if he's heard the Don't Die podcast. See, w- there's some great moments in our lives. Yeah, that, that, sometimes that you don't want to brag about, but it no. was just so weird. And so then I looked up the song, and, and I read the lyrics of the song over and over again, trying to figure out what it's about. And it's obviously about him in this upswing in his life where he's become very successful and being disillusioned and getting on drugs and drinking, right? And I think it's his wife who said this to him, I love you, please don't die. All right, so this is the music show from Don't Die Podcast. And then this gets to the point. Next week, I'm going to Milwaukee to the Don't Die, the Fe- Don't Die Mu- Music Wisconsin. Festival, Wisconsin. And then I'm going to play music because that's all people want to hear. They don't want to hear about Suboxone. Now, are they going to record <laughs> you and put you on the Don't Die Wisconsin? I hope so. Yeah, of course. You know, but I'm so excited to go up there. And I got to mm-hmm. tell you, Mike, I've been going back and forth with Patrick, and they're all organizing everything. I'm talking on Friday night. I'm, I'm doing a radio interview on the, on the day before I leave. Um, I'm playing on the Saturday night. I'm meeting the harm reduction people, which I'm very excited about, the needle exchange people. I'm going to the rehabs that they work at. I'm going to meet all those people. And Patrick is organizing the whole thing. Yeah. Dude, they are lapping us. Well, they are no, beyond us. Come the on, Don't man. die, Wisconsin. I mean, do you think that's hard to do or something? Like, <laughs> yes. you know, we're like, we're like musicians. We don't, we're not, we don't, you know, those guys are like go-getters, man. <laughs> they are go-getters. You know? They're then what does that make us? I, if it makes us just casually like, hey, we'll start the thing. You guys, you know, you do all the work. <laughs> I just feel embarrassed. It's Every like when we were in the band, Bob. Patrick Remember, texts everybody me else like did a, all the work. Yeah, but Patrick texts me like another thing he's got in store. And I'm like, how the fuck does this guy have the time? He's got a little kid. He's got work. And he's doing more things for Don't Die than you and me are. And it's our I'm, full-time job. I'm so proud of him. You guys <laughs> keep doing all that good work, man. And just, you know, and just but don't I'm, forget who. <laughs> but so that brings me to the thing. Uh, that that don't die is about whether it's wisconsin or here in la or in vegas or in sacramento there's a lot of little things popping up is why do we have to say to addicts don't die and i've been puzzled by it like more and more people in 2016 there was like 58,000 everybody thought well that'll be the pinnacle that'll be the most overdose deaths America will ever see and because we've done all this work to educate the public and there's all these outreach and all the suboxone programs that all this stuff that we've been doing to reduce the overdose death rate and so 2017 is going to show that our efforts have really curbed the the number and the number yeah. went up 18% to 72,000 in 2017. So obviously whatever we're doing is not working. We're like a thimble trying to, you know, drain the ocean. No, but <laughs> Trump I mean, really. Trump and Trump and Sessions aren't They've got. They just allocated six billion dollars. It's not going to do anything because I realized something. The addict population right now is not like the addict population of our day, and I'll tell you why. 
if you remember in like 1980, I remember it in 1983 particularly, that this thing that, that gay men were getting called ARC, also referred to on the street as gay cancer, that mm. it was being transmitted through blood, through intravenous drug use, right. because it, it, it kind of moved and migrated from the gay community in Los Angeles to the addict community. And, and if you know anything about L.A., the gay community is kind of based in West Hollywood, which is right in the center of Los Angeles. And then the intravenous drug community for multiple decades has been in East Hollywood. East Hollywood, Echo Park, Silver Lake. Going back to Warren Zevon's song about the junkie girl that lives on the outside of town. Right, she lives yes. in Echo Park. Yep. Right? Yeah. So, so multi generational drug addiction in Los Angeles has been based in East Hollywood. I mean, the you know hardcore junkies, East Hollywood, Silver Lake, Echo Park, downtown LA. That's where it's been based, and it started to migrate out of West Hollywood into Hollywood, into East Hollywood. I remember the first person I knew that was diagnosed with it who wasn't gay was like, "Holy fuck! How did I get this?" So this is happening in real time on the ground in 1983. Mike, you were there. Right. You were shooting drugs. You had needles that were four months old in your back pocket, just like me and Anthony and everybody else. And we all changed our behavior. As soon as it started to be a reality, the friends of ours are getting this and dying from it. We changed our behavior. Well, like you were saying earlier, we as a community... You know what I mean? Sort of, sort talked of amongst ourselves. talked among ourselves, and then educated amongst, and then other people got involved in the news things and said, "You have to do this. You have to clean your needles." You there were bleed. leaders. There were leaders in the community, right? That were that were educated. But it people. was junkies caring for junkies. Yes, and I remember I was, and I'm going to tell this very kind of scary story from that era. It was like 1984, probably. And I was over at Black Randy's house when he lived on Vine Street, <clears throat> yeah. right? Right. And we were shooting speed. Like, I don't know why, we were probably trying to get off of heroin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, was an, that was an old kind of idea that kind of vanished off the face of the earth. Like, it didn't work very well. But the idea was, and I always had it in my mind, too, that if you just shoot enough speed and stay up for, like, six days, you won't be dope You never, you, it You worked. won't be dope set. It actually Well, worked. you'll be psychotic, though. Well, <laughs> Like you're, not, you're not already. It does. It does know. work though. You're already psychotic. Right? <laughs> well, you just didn't really know it. Well, that really brings it to the fore. Yes. So, yeah, Gazy used to do it. Like it was a thing. Like all yeah. of those, all of my elder drug uh, teachers would use speed if you wanted to kick dope. Yes, for right? four or five days. Yeah. So me and Randy are doing that. And we're on the roof of the building for whatever reason. We didn't want to, we were getting paranoid in his apartment. We went on the roof of this beautiful building called the L. Royalton or whatever, where Mae West lived off the golf course there. Yeah. If anybody's right. a Los Angelian, that's where Black Randy lived. Black Randy was always able to make money through telemarketing. You know what I mean? He always had money, he really? was like a salesman. 
Really? Like music was just like a what, hobby to him. You mean he wasn't just like one of those toner no, toner he, salesmen? Yeah, he was a toner salesman. Oh, he was a toner salesman. But okay. he was making like two grand a week. So he could talk. Yeah, the people that could really talk good could make a lot of money. I think that. they still can. I think there's still telemarketing sales going on. I think it's not toner, but it's something else. Anyways, Black Randy was the king of that. And he also, for you that don't know who Black Randy is, he's a legend in L.A. music. He started the first punk rock record label in Los Angeles called Danger House. He was a shaker and a mover and an intellectual. Black Randy and the Metro Squad. And we're going to play Black Randy and the Metro Metro Squad right now so people can get familiar. Yes, and if you want to... That's Randy, and and he was amazing. He was like a punk rock James White James Brown. It was an incredible yeah, was band. So he and I are at his house, and we've been up for like two days, and we end up on the roof of the building, which oversees all of Los Angeles, and it was dark out, and we had put our needles down on the lip of the building, right? Yeah, right. And they were pretty close to each other. They were, you know, because you get tweaked out, and you're like kind of walking around and. Sure, weirding sure. out and then we went back to where the spoons and needles were and you and forgot which one was forgot which. which was which and i looked at him and i go which was yours and he goes it doesn't matter to me as much as it matters to you oh my god because <laughs> oh, he was positive and i was oh. like holy fuck this is a dilemma this is an ethical dilemma now you got to understand i'd been up shooting speed for two days right. psychotic out of my mind, um, I had clarity. I was like, fuck, because needles were so hard to find, we all kept them and held on to them because you couldn't get a hold of them, right. right? And I was like, fuck it, fuck it. I don't, what it which, uh, I don't need my needle anymore. I'll find another one. Yeah. Like, in the middle of, of methamphetamine psychosis, just the fact that I'm shooting drugs with my friend who's positive and we can't figure out which needle is which. Oh, uh, yeah. I just said, fuck it. Kids need to start being aware and trusting their inner survival self and stop this madness of taking fentanyl when you get out of rehab and dying and taking, you know, and shooting fentanyl before they even, fentanyl lays dope before they even know how strong it is. It's ridiculous. I know that it's not the government that's going to save us addicts. It's not the fucking pharmaceutical industry. It's not doctors. It's not rehabs that's going to save us. It's us encouraging and supporting and educating each other. So if you're a young kid and you're battling and going in and out of rehab and you're battling, it's called, I can tell you what it's called. It's called, um, it's called, uh, oh shit, what is the term for it? There's a clinical term for it that's so funny. It's calling, it's called recurring remitting sobriety. Oh my God! In 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 KDAC, you, you know, guys come up with the weirdest <laughs> shit. Man. Recurring, remitting sobriety. So it means so it means you become sober and then you become unsober. 
right? And that's the population of millennials that are going in and out of rehab because of Obamacare and the Parity Act. <clears throat> you cannot get so discouraged and so I don't give a fuck that you buy a $20 bag of dope from somebody you don't know and you put it all in a spoon and you shoot it up. You right. can't. Isn't there something like we could we could like we could sort of promote which which is like just take a tiny bit. No, first. do what I did. I was the first one going in out of rehab in nineteen eighty. You take a tiny bit. You smoke some. Smoke it. That's not good. You can't happen. die from smoking it. I mean, now you're gonna Dr. Drew or somebody's gonna say, Yes, you can. Yeah, you can. Not like you can from shooting it. Well, okay, well, why don't we promote, like, just taking a little tiny granule of it and, tr- and seeing if how powerful it is. Smoking is the simplest test. I did it I for mean, why de- do they, a decade. Why, I never had to just do my whole bag. You never got sober. Uh, I never had to do my whole balloon in Let's one shot. Let's tell the story of Mike. Mike shot dope for 15 years, and then one day he just decided to be no, sober on Christmas like Day of day. 1993 or 94. Which is it? It is 92. Christmas Day of 1992, Mike Mart woke up and said, I'm going to be sober, and you've been sober no, every no, no, day no. to this day. Yeah. Yes, you have. You're going to make it, it about it, something okay. else. All right, in a, in, a, in a small way, that's it. Yeah, I guess I did. But so you I didn't went a, go to rehabs like no, me No, I, went, I went away to Sacramento with Susie, and I, and, I, and I detoxed in a room, you know, all alone. <laughs> all alone. Susie was with you. Yeah, but she. I just said, look, I just want to be alone, and I and I was and and she took me up to her mom's house. I was in a room. I basically did. You just have TV? Alone. No, I just read. I read the twenty-four hour book every morning, and then I slept. How did you sleep when you don't sleep? I just didn't sick? really sleep. I was just in and out of sleep. You know? Did how you masturbate is? a lot? No, I didn't <laughs> even think about anything. I just thought about like you know what? I'm. I just want to get over this. I was in jail and I masturbated a lot. I don't know why it helped. It helped. I don't know why I didn't. So you and I kicked (laughs) with nothing. I kicked with nothing. I kicked with nothing, and it wasn't that bad. I kicked methadone for some reason. It wasn't that bad. I have no idea why. You know, to this day, I think it was maybe like a God thing or whatever. No, come on. Oh, come on. I have no No. idea why. It's but all of a sudden, I was stricken sober, and it wasn't that bad kicking. Because it's never that bad kicking. We blow it all up in our minds, in our diseased minds, so that we can go use again. Once you accept it, it's not that bad. It's like having the flu. It's like having the fucking flu. Any junkie that... I've had it a thousand times. And then since I've been sober, I've had the flu. It's like having this horrible flu that goes around now every year. Right. It's exactly the same. Diarrhea, vomiting, body aches, want to die, sitting there, just fucking miserable. And then all of a sudden, you just start to feel better. And then you feel normal. Yeah, and dope addicts want to make the biggest deal about their withdrawal symptoms. And, you know, it's all about this kind of whiny thing where, you know, hey, give me some money. I want to go use dope. But I did it for years because I think it's the disease or whatever you want to call it, the mental defect, the the spiritual malady, whatever you choose to call what's wrong with addicts and alcoholics. Once that thing gets something that bashes into it and says no more. 
it doesn't have the power that it has when you're contemplating. So there's different stages of addiction of dealing with it. Contemplation is going back and forth. You're sitting there going, I want to be sober, but oh man. Now, I is, just that a re- be- is that a real psychological yeah. fact? Or is that something that you, that you made up? Well, no, it's, it's, it's because goes all the way back to 150 that years ago. That really seems like what happened to me. Yes, it's called, it's called sudden and dramatic psychic change. And that's, it's, it, and it's, and it's, that's what happened. And it's, it's what happened to George W. Bush from everything I've read about him and his drinking in cocaine. And it goes back to varieties of religious experience by William James. There were people that were kind of how they describe it in the, in the 1800s as evil, selfish, right? And somehow they have this religious experience that completely changes how they treat people and how they operate. And it was called a sudden and dramatic psychic change. That's what Bill Wilson thought happened to him. I watched it happen to you. You were not the same after December 25th, 1992. No, I was not. I just didn't so, want to do it anymore. So here's the I problem. I don't know what happened. You've got 20 million people with this problem, and it's not the sudden and dramatic psychic change. It's not going to happen for them. Like for a handful or a hundred or a thousand, but not for 19,990,000. It's not going to happen on this day or that day, the next day. So what do you do with those people? And the idea that treatment was supposed to help them have that experience. That's what the whole 12 steps is, to help people realize to have that experience, that spiritual experience. And people being put into your lives, like you, for example are put into people's lives mysteriously, probably through rehabs and stuff like that, but you have that same effect sometimes. Through email. It's a weird... Bringing, I go on and on that. about the internet. I, I've gotten in contact and with people through email. Like, email didn't exist when Bill Wilson wrote the book. So sometimes, and it's random, because I, you know I drive a lot, so I was driving to Temecula, to Laguna, to Malibu, and when I would drive, I would, and I'd be stuck in traffic, I would just look at emails or, and read them. And if there was a phone number on there, I would just click on it and call a person. And, and that's been dozens and dozens of people that have gotten sober through that, just that. People can come into your life to change your life. I believe that Susie was put into my life and changed my life. Sudden and dramatic psychic change. <laughs> I love that. That one's good. That's yeah. what happened to you. Can we abbreviate <clears throat> that and put it somewhere? <laughs> it's in the 12 steps. <laughs> I know, I know. But but so, and I'm most fascinated by W. Bush, right? Because right. here's the black sheep of the Bush family. He's just going off the rails. He's on coke. He's drunk. He's getting in fights. And all of a sudden. Buying baseball and, teams. And he, he wrote about it. So it's so fascinating. So his wife said she was going to leave him. So we all need this kind of catalyst. We need a person in our lives to push us towards the sudden and dramatic psychic change. That's right. what Susie did for you. you I can, think so. You can push people in nice ways or you can push people in very direct harsh ways right so so bush gets pushed to that you know it's all coming to an end and he knew this guy that was sober and the guy said meet me at the holiday inn restaurant tonight at seven o'clock and Bush goes there. Now he's been coked out. And he got a fight, and he's drunk, and his dad hates him, and everybody's disappointed in him, right? He goes there, meets this man, reads the Bible. The guy shares with him how he got sober. They read the Bible. Bush 
never drinks or never takes drugs ever again and becomes president of the United States. Yeah, that's weird. That's crazy. But well, when I, mean, I read it, I was like, that happens to a lot of people I know. But you can't create that in a rehab, right? It's called complete surrender. There, you can't create it. So what you're trying to do, most of the people are in this contemplative stage where you kind of want to stop, but the, but the thing hasn't happened yet where you really understand it. I remember coming out of jail, using, ODing, waking up, and thinking, it's drugs. If I stopped doing drugs, my life would get better. Do you know how many, and I have never used since then, do you know how many people have told me, had told me that over the last 10 years prior to that? About 10,000 people. But to me, all of a sudden, it was very simple. Stop doing drugs and everything will get better. And I believed it and I knew it in my heart of hearts like I had never known it before. You can't create that in a rehab. Right. Yeah. So rehab is trying to nudge you, trying to educate you, trying to wake you up, trying to create some sort of... That's why I like throwing everything against the wall. I don't like these Hazelden models where everything that everyone says is exactly the same. I like the Aloe model where everybody says conflicting things and has different opinions on addiction and, and throws it all at the client. You'll get my version. I don't believe it's a disease. I believe it's mental illness and habituation, and you can break it. I don't believe there's anything that helps you break it. I believe that you decide to break it right yeah then there's other people that are devout 12 steppers my my main partner up there is a devout 12 stepper sponsors like 50 guys and has book studies at his house and stuff like that and he's allowed to to share his experience sure. and evan shares his and everybody just throws everything at the clients so that you're trying to find what will trigger enlightenment in one individual. And so it's better if you got 19 different opinions coming at you of how you got sober than one monochromatic, you 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 know, you do what you're told, you go to meetings, you fought, work the steps, right? Blah, 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 blah. right? Yeah, some people need that constant direction of that. Not, not many millennials do. They don't like it, right? right? They don't. They don't follow directions. They don't even. They don't even want to get a job. A lot of them. I'm like, yeah. you know, a lot of your problems. I was talking to a bunch of them last night. A lot of your problems stem from your dependence economically on your family. If you could break the economic dependence on your family, they wouldn't be able to tell you what to do, and you wouldn't feel so angry and resentful and powerless. Right. I got you. Right. Yeah. It was probably the greatest gift I gave Elijah was like, I'll help you help yourself, but I'm not just giving you carte blanche. And he got right. that at 19 years old. He understood that he could count on me to help him when he needed help, but not, not this constant ongoing financial care that a lot of parents feel they owe to their children. Like, I'll help him if he's behind, I'll help him get a car, I'll help him do this, I'll help him do that. Then those things that he he receives, he takes advantage of and takes and runs with, right? Right, yeah. I'm so proud of him that he's never, since he was 17, he has not lived in my house. Yeah. I mean, how many millennials can say that? Since he's 17, I'm so yeah. proud of him in that respect. Yeah. And it ain't been easy. <laughs> yeah. Right? 
No, it's your first tendency is to be the helicopter parent. I know you. And you don't want to, you know, have your kid, you know, sleeping at the booby trap. You ever heard of this place? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He'll kill me, but he wants to kill me all the time. So I'll tell you this story about the booby trap. So it was one of the saddest days I've ever known where this, this really great, vibrant, young kid died of a drug overdose in the late 90s and he had a lot of friends at the booby trap right and and uh and i got a call like you should go down there because those kids are talking some crazy shit and i was like i don't want to butt in on my son's business right and then another person called me and said you know he really needs you right now this is is an ex-girlfriend or a friend of his okay so i went down to the booby trap i walk in they're all sitting in that black living room did you ever go there yeah where they had concerts in the living room right this is a legendary punk rock house in long beach that i think it's been torn down right i'm not sure anyways it was this huge house and like 30 20 kids lived in it there were people just jammed in the corners of in the attics and the basement it was really cool i thought it was really cool i know there was a lot of drugs and and stuff there but it was and it was it was uh, it was on long beach boulevard right down to yeah yeah it was on long beach boulevard so it wasn't in like a neighborhood all the shit around it was like a denny's uh, you yeah, know, a yeah. Gas it was station. a single big. Was it three story house? It was I like a three story yeah, house yeah, with yeah. a basement. Yeah, and, and and in the living room they had everything a around it. There menu. was no houses. It was like this house, this Victorian house, sort of stuck in the middle of like all the shit that went up greatest, around it. It was the greatest. It was the. I I knew where my son was, and I knew that he was around creative people, and I knew that there was trouble there too. Right. Right. Yes. So I walk in, and they're sitting around in the concert living room right. drink a whiskey in uh plastic cups they got a jack daniels bottle and they're getting up the courage to go beat up the guy who had given the drugs to the guy who had died oh yeah this is a dilemma for any father right <laughs> especially me because i understand that feeling of like i'm so overwhelmed with feeling i want to take action i want to get even i want to you know um when Hillel died, I really wanted to know who was with him, right. who was fucking with him. And still to this day, I don't know. I have my suspicions, but I don't know. And and with maturity and with time and with insight, you say it doesn't really matter who was with him. Whoever was with him had to do what they had to do. It was a strange, horrible thing for that person to go through to also. Right, but so they're they're you know wanting even and what I did was and here's what I did we did like group therapy even though everybody was drinking I just said well (laughs) and I let I tried to steer a couple of them to share like how they were feeling right because really the feelings were driving the need for action right sure and and it it was just amazing and I'm so proud of him like he never even after that place blew up he didn't ask to come home and live with me no right he knew not to so i'm not telling millennials parents to do something that i haven't done myself you can't let them live at your house and tell them what to do all the time you can't did colleen did colleen let him come home at all yeah sometimes not for long though 
right? She's pretty firm, right? She's she's pretty firm. But I mean, it's not firm. It's being loving. Like I want my son to have his own life. I don't want a cohabitative life with my son. That's what parents are doing to these kids. Right, they're giving them, yeah, And the reason why I talk about it so much in front of you is you got teenagers coming up the road, Mike. Well, I don't have anything really to give them, you know. <laughs> you, got a, you got a house they can live in. You know, you got a house they can live in. They're going to want more than that. Right? <laughs> Sometimes that's all I kids think. need. Really? Yeah, because they get out. I don't know, man. But, but uh, you know, a lot of the parents need to listen to the counselors that are talking about this thing called boundaries. It's a stupid word. But, but it's to love your kid enough to let them go and let them grow and let them become adults and i see so many thousands and thousands of parents oh well he's got a drug problem i've got he's got a drug problem so what that means they need to pay his car insurance and cell phone bill and tell him what to do and tell him what to think and have him live in your house and all these kind of things when he doesn't have the drugs he has like the flu <laughs> it's yeah. like that's as worse as it gets. Yeah, you know you die, and, and it, you don't die from drug ro- uh, withdrawals. No, and so you know, and why I say this is because I think a lot of millennials' parents are old punk rockers. At the very least, they're old new wavers, as they were called, right? So if you figure, if your kid's thirty-two, like my kid is, um, I should be like, uh, yeah, like I should be my age, like fifty-seven. I was right, twenty-five yeah. when he was born. That's about the perfect norm, right? Yeah. So these parents of these kids that are in these rehabs are about our age. They listen to REM and Chili Peppers, and they grew up with, you know, the Lemon Heads, and they, you know what I mean? The Lemon Heads. The Lemon Heads are so good. That is the greatest song ever written about drug buddies. <laughs> my, That's pretty good. My love, my drug buddy. Oh my god! I love that song. Those Viper Room days. Viper Room days. And uh, uh, I'm trying when to Sal think. Sal ran the place. It was awesome. One of the great moments of my life was when Lemonheads were on their upswing, and Evan was on the cover of Rolling Stone, and they played the Palace, right? Yeah. And everybody was there. And this is probably. 93 94 and so at that time i didn't have a place to live or any money and i was strung out right and i was the drug getter for people that night literally i'm not going to say the musicians yeah i will courtney love gave me like 500 bucks to go get to open right coke. <laughs> so did somebody else from her band so did so did somebody from a texas <clears throat> band so i was just going around to all the you know how the palace was had the dressing rooms all up and down the stairs i was just going from dressing room to dressing room and oh, the people say hey can God. you get me something and i was like i walked out of there with like a thousand dollars i never went back to wherever think- they were like do you think people that have been to the viper room nowadays don't even realize like how weird and cool it was with yeah the one room with the one weird room with the that you could see in but you, or you could see out but you can't see in i had a yeah there was a tiny little room where when when 
Johnny and Sal designed the Viper Room. They wanted to have this private room where you could sit and watch the bands and, and Johnny wouldn't get bugged by people, right? Or Leonardo or all the his friends, right? right. right? So it had this this like couch like along the back like, wall. Yeah, yeah, along the back wall that you could fit like eight people. And then there was this you, not this mirror thing that what the public thought was a mirror, a mirrored window, and, and you could watch the bands because you're only like you could forty feet away from them. You could you see out, see and you couldn't see in. But in it, right from the very start, the first couple months, people realized that that's where Johnny sits. So if you went up there and you put, put your, your hands, hands on it, you could <laughs> see inside and see him. So that was even weirder than just being out in the club. <laughs> right? So so it became kind of a place where, like, if if the Rolling Stones came or or you know somebody, they would sit in there, and and it never really worked out right. Then it became like a storage facility right. where we put all the amps. Right. It was, it didn't work. The secret booth was not a secret for long. Right. Right. But I remember I was there one time with Tom Waits and there was, there, there was a sit down show, um, with tables and chairs and there was tables and chairs right against that wall where the mirrored glass was. Right. right. And Chucky Weiss was sitting there. Right. And Chucky was doing the thing, looking in to see oh, us yeah. inside there. Right. Like, what are you guys and, doing? And this is, I don't know. I, I love telling rock and roll stories. Tom, Tom stood up and put his thing right there where Chucky was looking. <laughs> <laughs> and when Chucky could finally see what he was looking at, he was looking at Tom Waits' dick. <laughs> oh, my God. He just didn't know it was Tom Waits'. And I was in there one time where Timothy Leary was in there so drunk, and me and Perry and Timothy Leary's wife were trying to pick him up and get him out of the club, and he was so heavy, and he he had passed out oh, in there. And I remember, like, you know, I was like 130 pounds. Perry's always been like 130 pounds. We're not going to pick up this guy and walk him out of the Viper Room. It's not going to happen. No. Like, it was so crazy. We're trying to wake him up. Come on, Tim, it's time to go. <laughs> so that's yeah the people that go to the viper room i don't think they even know they the history know of it that. there's never been a book about it i think everybody's real guarded about johnny and whatever people are so weird about does he still own it no he gave it to yeah. the daughter of one of the partners i think um, so so you know the, it's so strange that at this age after all this that people are still worried about what people think i don't give a fuck what anybody thinks i care you know what my close handful of friends think what my kids are like and you know be cool to people you work with i don't give a fuck what somebody thinks of twitter or, oh bob Forrest is gossiping i don't give a fuck i don't give a fuck it was fun times it was it was crazy times and I'm telling you, right in the middle of this whole drug problem that uh, uh, you and I and so many people in Los Angeles had, there was a crisis that was deadly and we changed our behavior. There is a crisis now that is deadly and addicts need to change their behavior. I'm not saying they need to get sober or go to rehab. They need to change their behavior and be cautious and be aware and be mindful that one dose of dope can kill you. 
Yeah, there's no scientific amount that, you know, I mean, you've got people that are cutting the shit and they don't know what the hell they're they doing. They don't know how, they you don't know, really if care. They get, if you get one batch, a hot batch or whatever like that, you're going to you're gonna go out and you're going to die. There's another problem, And that's problem, how it's working. But, but like you said, junkies watching out for each other, us, ex-junkies, basically, and recovering addicts have to watch out for their community, which is the people that are still using well that well that what goes on a lot is and it happened it happened at aloe we have a policy about it that we don't kick people out in the middle of the night just because they fucked up or they used or they behave like an addict most rehabs still do that's like literally sending somebody out in the middle of the night discouraged disillusioned feeling like a failure just with their setting phone. them up to go die. Yeah. In my opinion. With their phone, so, with their connection. So it's simple. All you people that work in treatment, try to get the owners to do, to agree that the Don't old way out. of kicking people out is not fair in a 21st century world. I don't even know if Cry Help still does it. I would, I would, I would, I love Cry Help. I'm going to find out if they still kick people out upon you know, sexual contact or being intoxicated. Mm -hmm. I just can't imagine that any compassionate person in this day and age where the leading cause of death of young people is drug overdose can still have that hardcore, tough love policy that if you fuck up, you're out of here, right? There can always be the threat of that, but it doesn't have to be so sudden and dramatic, discouraging and unsupportive and this ostracization uh, from the cult. That's, what, that's where it comes from. The cult mentality that Synanon kind of created that, cre that is the founding blocks of rehab was if you don't be with the program, if you're not participating, if you're not following in a cult-like fashion, you are ostracized. And that yeah. the remnants of that are still in these rehab centers. If somebody has sex or punches somebody or does something wrong um, or smuggles drugs in or gets high while they're on a pass that you just ostracize them with no support and just you need to pack your shit and go that needs to end all across the recovery industry spectrum that is in my kind of harder criticism manslaughter that is sending somebody out in the middle of the night because most of these things happen in the middle of the night Mike I know, once again, I will reiterate, you've never been in I've a rehab. I've never been in a rehab. So, so when do you think all the sex and the drugs and the trouble happens? Well, I don't know. I've never been in one. It's at night. Okay. I, I take your word for it. I just don't know. Well, think about this. Does that, it's like, Seems like it would happen in the morning. <laughs> Why would you know, it happen I mean, in the morning? I don't know. <laughs> you think it would time. happen in the morning? Yeah, the best time to you know get high for me was in the morning. Really? Yeah. Why? Because everybody loved would go, getting high in the morning. It was like be coffee. alone because all your partners would be at work. Yeah. That's yeah. why. See, yeah. that's your habituation. That's because your lifestyle. I know your lifestyle very well. I was right there watching it the entire time. You always had a great girlfriend who cared very much about you and was gonna turn you around and fix me, fix you. And they always worked. They always had a job, and they didn't use drugs. Yes, because I didn't really want a drug partner. <laughs> you didn't I want a drug buddy. Bu didn't you hear Evan's song? You didn't want a I drug buddy. I wanted to do all the drugs myself. <laughs> 
and then just have somebody buy them. <laughs> oh my God! So, so in your decade, I think it was probably we met in probably eighty four. Probably. Yeah, I used for about twenty years. Yeah. So, so you always had that mo. I remember you had that really great deco apartment in Fairfax District. Remember that? Yes. That was beautiful. How the fuck did somebody like and you then, live uh, there, Laura N? Yeah. Down in West Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, that 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 apartment and it was near Seidel's and like Spalding. What street was it on? It was uh, it was like Spalding. I don't yeah. know. Some some I can't Such remember. Such a the great address. apartment. Well, How did someone like that you? Was you're a homeless okay. bum. How did you have that apartment? That was uh, my girlfriend Laura N. At the time, her parents were very well off. They bought her that apartment. The whole building. The whole building. Oh my god. With the interest on her trust fund. Oh my God! Well, so that she could live there, and so and then she would go to school. I think she was in school, so she would go to get up in the morning, have some coffee, and be out the door. And then you could do drugs all day. Film. Yes, you were going to do drugs all day. Yeah. So, so and then the situation on on uh, Rowena, that beautiful blue house that you had the underground garage in. Oh, with that, the big tar ball? Yeah, exactly. That, that wife ball. that wife was going to work, and you would be down there. She would there. go to work. Yeah. She was a paralegal. Paralegal. Yeah. And you were doing drugs all morning. But inevitably, morning. like 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the evening, exactly. you were going to have to get it together and act like right. you didn't do that all exactly. day. So, the evenings so of course, the, the evenings morning. are not good in your mind, <laughs> no. but the mornings are great times to fond, use. fond, fond <laughs> memories of the mornings. <laughs> You know, me and the dog. Sometimes me and Pete would go by that place looking for you, and it, you have the door you and locked. Anthony came there. Yeah, yeah, and you'd have the door locked, and you had tinfoil all over. You couldn't see yeah, inside you couldn't see that. Heck, you don't. But we knew you were in there, and we'd be like, Mike, Mike, and I bet you were just in there, like, yeah, just want to let him in. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> That was cool. So, man. so that was your mo. My mo yeah. was try to survive the day because I drank so much. I always be hung over in the morning. So mornings were bad. Then well, I you would. See, you did you always have? You didn't always have. Uh, your partner wasn't always using. Or most of them were. Oh, they were. So you had to were. go out in the morning and hustle for them for both of you. Yeah, the, afternoon. Right. See, afternoon, I didn't because like we would stay up till four or five in the morning. So you, so you didn't have to, you were trying to live like some semblance of a middle class life. I was living the fucking rock and roll life. So, so there were certain spots that no matter the condition of my living situation, if I could make it to 10 o'clock at night, I could go to Smalls and hang out all night and do drugs. Or I could go to the Viper Room and hang out all night and do drugs Smalls. or i could go to a golden voice show or i could go to moguls or i could go to all these different places so that's where i got that's where i got the reputation of if you give bob a hundred bucks he'll go get you good dope and i would do it most of the time you know some people i just didn't feel really needed me to come back <laughs> But you know, getting back to that palace story, I never you really know, liked going out that much unless you didn't like I was people. playing. You don't like didn't, people, I didn't, you know. It kind of added to the mystery. I think I'm a people person, <laughs> but I, so, I would, you know, I would just when when I played, we would go out and we would have. But fun here's the short term gain of that night at the palace, right? When I get out of there with money, so a couple of people forgot about it. Right or you know or just thought that's Bob. He took my money and didn't come back with dope. But whatever. But owing money to Courtney back then, 
was like frightening. Anywhere you were that she was there, she'd come and punch you in the head. Oh my God. It was frightening. So then I was like, I got to make it up to her, you know, like whatever. <laughs> and then she got clean pretty much after that. 94. Really? Yeah. Not forever, but out of that whole rigmarole. Yeah. Right? People, she gets a bad rap. She's, she's, I, you know. I, I don't believe that whole, I know, love that whole her. conspiracy she's, thing with her. And I knew her long before that fucking Seattle bullshit. She's a solid person. Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, and all of them are. Evan's kind of weird. We're, me and Gibby were supposed to play at Carnegie Hall with Evan. And he, he didn't come to the rehearsal. And then he's like, oh, I couldn't get down there, but I'll be down there for sound check and we'll sound check. And then we're playing no Carnegie Hall. Right. Carnegie Hall. No sound check. Evan's like, we'll be at sound check. We haven't re rehearsed at all as a, as a unit. <laughs> and then, then our soundtrack, because there's a bunch of people playing, our sound check blows by. No Evan. Right. And we're still, me and Gary were sitting in the dressing room. Like, we didn't play till like 9.30. Sound check was like at 5. We're sitting there nervous as fuck. We're going to play Carnegie Hall. And we're still like getting texts from Evan whether he's going to come. Oh, or God. Not. He's funny. <laughs> and it's like, and then as soon as we realize, like, it's, it's time to go on, I don't think Evan's going to play. I remember Gibby just having this confidence that then I fed off of, like, it's going to be okay. We're going to fucking do this. Yeah. Right? And we did it. We, we did it. It was crazy. It's that Texas do-it-yourself sort of yeah. mentality that they have down there. We had a there. drummer, a guitar player, and me and Gibby singing. That's all there was. Yeah. <laughs> Think about that oh with two God. rehearsals. <laughs> At Carnegie Hall. <laughs> yeah. It's so crazy. <laughs> But I, but, but Evan's one of those guys you can't even get mad at over that. It's like Evan, like that's what he does. He's like, oh, I was, I'm in Nantucket. I gotta get down there. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the music ver uh, episode. gossip episode of of Don't Die. Also, so we're gonna play one of my favorite songs that changed my life right now. It's called Going Down to Florida. And before we play that, which is going to be right at the end, okay, yeah. let's um, let's. I want to tell you that I got in touch with the Don't Die Sacramento. Oh yeah, guys. That, yeah, and it's uh, how I, do we encourage them to be Bobo better than from us? California? Right. I don't know who you know. I mean, right. I guess he's like on the Howard Stern show. Is he sometimes or oh, he cool? Plays, I don't know. He knows all those guys. So they're doing Don't Die Sacramento, and it's going well. I contacted them and you know, kind of gave them direction. They have a podcast. Oh, I should call in. We should call in. It's, um, it's, uh, it, yeah, it's just called Don't Die Sacramento. Don't right? Die Sacramento. Shout and, out. Uh, shout out to those guys, man. That's, and thanks for uh, you know starting that chapter. Start your own chapter. Well, what you about know? David in Las Vegas? Is he doing that? I haven't been in touch with him, but if he get if he wants to, he can get, get a hold Anybody of me. Anybody that Twitter. wants to start a don't die, it's just something to have fun what and you be do aware of is your you community. You start a podcast and you call it Don't Die and Whatever then you put town your city here. Yeah. You put your city after it. Yeah. Right? So then then you have your own community in your city and you you know you're you're hooked up with the rehab there and whatever, you know? Yeah, the you people the sober it. people cuz here's it just dawned on me more and more. It's a community. The only people that are going to have any impact on this drug epidemic is other addicts. 
It's not going to be doctors or the government or Demi Lovato or what. It's not going to be anything like that. It's just going to be somebody like Bobo, somebody like Patrick, somebody like, you know, like Chuck, who's not here today. Just just having an open heart and an open mind and kind of trying to be compassionate, trying to educate and trying to encourage and trying to support. We're starting a community. We're starting a community. And that hoping really that you listen cares. and you don't die. That's okay? it. So, so let's see you later. moving down to Florida. Don't uh, die, everybody. See you later. All right, hey, this is Bob in the Don't Die podcast. Got a hundred people a day dying of drug overdoses and it's got to stop. Aloe Treatment Centers wants it to stop. We want people to get educated about drugs, about treatment. We want you to learn, laugh, and live, but first and foremost, don't die. I'm going to move down to Florida. <laughs> and I'm going to bowl me a, a perfect game. I'm going to cut off my leg down in Florida. <laughs> Hey, this is Bob, and you can get a hold of Aloe Treatment Centers at 888-595-0235. That's Aloe Treatment Centers in Malibu and Silver Lake, 888-595-0235. Tell them Bob told you to call. <laughs>